G'day, humans. The pandemic has not been kind to rational conversation. It has not been kind to consensus building. The past, oh, what is it, 12 months, 14 months, 16 months, has been a whirlwind of competing interpretations, rival scientific ideas, and ultimately a kind of a war of attrition in which both sides hunker down on the battlefield, in their trenches, certain that either lockdowns make no sense or lockdowns are essential and we should be doing more of them, that vaccines are the solution to the pandemic or vaccines are an overrated conspiracy to turn us all into obedient sheeple. This has not been a great time to, I suppose, fulfill the expectation that a great disaster might bring us together. Do you remember at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a sense that maybe this is the thing that is finally going to let us slough off our divisiveness, our superstitions, our irrationalities, our tribalisms, our parochialism, our nationalism. And as we enter this great global challenge, we will come together. Did we? Perhaps not. But perhaps the wake of the pandemic, perhaps the recovery from the pandemic, perhaps the next chapter is a time when we can come together, say enough is enough. We will not be cowed from having the conversations that we want to have on the terms that we want to have them. We will not be cowed from believing in science and reason and we will state things clearly and plainly and I will respect you as a person. But respecting you as a person means that I won't always respect your stupid ideas. I will respect you enough to stand up to the stupid ideas. I will respect you enough to have the kind of frank conversation that perhaps we need to have if we're both grown-ups. This is a place for those conversations. Conversations that are respectful, conversations that are thoughtful, conversations that are informative, and sometimes, more often than not, yes, a little uncomfortable. Welcome to the show. I have been trying to get this guest for oh so long, low these many years or weeks or days, really. Uh, This is a guest so important at a global, influential level that we've had to continually reschedule because she keeps having to stay up until four in the morning on at, at World Health Organization meetings, which are not necessarily timed ideally for Australia, but because she is a, a VIP of global stature, she has to spend her nights at the World Health Organization virtually and then cancelling on poor old Mr. Zepps. Uh, but we got up and uh, what better time to have this conversation about the future of life under the pandemic. Uh, Mary Louise McClaws is a professor of epidemiology. From 2005 to 2007, she was the World Health Organization's advisor to China and Malaysia. So knows a thing or two about that. She reviewed the SARS outbreak in Beijing and among healthcare workers in Hong Kong. And she reviewed the pandemic influenza guidelines of Australia on behalf of the Australian government 
the guidelines for healthcare workers in a pandemic. So the past 12 months have been very busy for her. She's, this is the what her entire life has essentially been leading up to. She is a member of the World Health Organization, as well as it's like I could read off a whole list of the Health Emergencies Program Experts Advisory Panel for Infection Prevention and Control Preparedness, Readiness and Response to COVID-19, and a member of the New South Wales Clinical Excellence Commission COVID Infection Prevention and Control Task Force. Phew. Her expertise is hospital infection and infectious disease control, uh, and uh, she's uh, an epidemiologist uh, professor at the University of New South Wales, which is located in Sydney. She's one of Australia's leading experts on coronavirus and one of the world's, really. And I'm so glad that I was able to speak to to Mary Louise uh, right now. Uh, it is currently Friday the 28th of May. Last night, Thursday the 27th, uh, Victoria the second most populous state in Australia and uh, the home to Melbourne, entered a seven-day lockdown. There was a breach of the hotel quarantine system for inbound travellers from abroad. Uh, And uh, so Melbourne has yet again gone into a lockdown. You may remember that last year Melbourne had one of the most severe lockdowns anywhere in the world, four months of exhausting, harrowing uh, lockdown. New South Wales, the most popular state where Sydney is located, has taken a lighter touch towards lockdowns and has relied more on testing and contact tracing and localised lockdowns in suburbs where there have been outbreaks rather than the more heavy-handed blanket lockdown that Victoria has undertaken. So I want to understand first whether or not lockdowns work and the extent to which they work and whether there are alternatives. But more importantly, what's going to happen once the international border is open and we get rid of the quarantine hotels? Are we just going to keep locking down when unvaccinated people come into the country? Is there a realistic realistic expectation that at some point we're going to be leading normal pre-COVID lives and also have an open international border? Or is that fantasy? There was a big hoo-ha a few weeks ago when the boss of Virgin Australia, the airline, said quite bluntly that, you know, we have to start thinking and having a serious, honest conversation with ourselves about what level of death really we're willing to tolerate from coronavirus. Because if, unless we want to be a hermit kingdom forever, at some point this policy of keeping out all foreigners and making every returning Australian stay in a, under police guard in a hotel prison for 14 days, that is not going to be sustainable. And given the variants and the mutants and the inadequacies of the vaccine and the existence of anti-vaxxers and of people with compromised immune systems and so on, is it realistic to imagine that there will be a day when Australia has zero COVID deaths and also an open border and also no real physical distancing, which is sort of the status quo in Sydney and much of Australia right now because there's no endemic community coronavirus spreading around. And the Virgin boss was saying that's unrealistic. We have to accept that at some point coronavirus is going to slip in, it's going to become endemic and people will die. Well, unleash the hounds of hell on her. Everyone said that that was incredibly tactless. She had to backtrack it and apologize. But a little part of me respected her chutzpah for being able to articulate what nobody else is willing to admit. 
that the status quo is not sustainable and we shouldn't want it to be. But I don't want to be a broadcaster who just waves his arms about and goes, well, you know, we should just have to get over ourselves and we need to open up. And, like, I d- I'm not an epidemiologist. I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't know how to balance the risks with what might be a prudent approach. So I wanted to talk to Mary Louise because she does know those things. Having just had this conversation that you're about to hear, I can honestly say I am more hopeful about the future than I have been in 12 months. I hope you will be too after you hear this conversation between me and the one and only WHO-approved, sleep-deprived Professor Mary Louise McCormick. Can we just start by establishing how useful we know lockdowns are? They're a circuit breaker. They have to be used well while people are in uh, lockdown so that contact tracers have sufficient time to uh, order the priority of who, uh, which contact needs to be um, uh, set at the top of the list and then ring them up, develop um, a, a rapport and trust and then go through a very long and detailed questionnaire helping the contact remember all sorts of details about what could have placed them at risk and also what how they may inadvertently have caused other people risk. So don't forget that good contact tracing means that when a case is found, 100% of them should be identified and contacted within 24 hours of that diagnosis. Uh, in Australia, it's relatively easy. Um, everybody has a mobile phone practically, and uh, they know after having a test that they're going to be contacted. Um, and then, of course, if they don't answer the phone, they are also supposed to be at home after being tested. That's the general rule. You get tested, you stay at home. The government pays a small amount to cover the cost of you not going to work. So that if you don't answer the phone, the police go around and knock on your door to see if you're okay and to try to then um, match you up with your with your contact tracer so they can start that really important uh, interview. And then once they've found from the case all the contacts, on average, a person between 20 and 39 and in Australia and in fact most of the world um, they carry the majority of the burden for cases. And because of the nature of their age and their sociability and their work life, and they often have to have multiple jobs within this global economic downturn, they have at least 10 contacts a day. So a contact tracer is constantly working behind time to find their um, each contact and to ascertain um, who their other secondary cases are to stop further spread because we know that about 16% of people will always be asymptomatic, never, ever have a symptom, and they can still cause infection. And then we know that about from day three or four after exposure, most people become, or 50% of people start to become infectious. And that 
kind of relates to about day two or three before symptoms. And then on symptoms, you become very infectious. Your viral load is high. And then it usually takes an average person two days to get tested after symptoms before that penny drops that, oh, I might be sick. So you've then got another two days of um, potential spread. So the poor old contact tracer is constantly working behind time, and that's why you need a circuit breaker for lockdown. So if the lockdown is just a pause button to allow the contact tracers to do their work and try to ring-fence the, 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 the disease without it getting ahead of them as they're trying to, to play catch-up, does that mean that a lockdown would not be particularly useful in the absence of contact tracing? Uh, it would still be useful, but you'd have to extend that lockdown. So sometimes a quick, sharp lockdown with a few unusual cases um, helps uh, because if uh, if you don't start finding evidence of um, uh, coronavirus in the wastewater uh, areas where you've never seen them before, because don't forget you excrete this virus for a very long time. So it's very helpful if you've never seen the virus in certain wastewater. And just to clarify for people who might not know what you're talking about, we, we are testing the sewage. Uh, Correct. And is that is that commonplace all over the world or is that an Australian thing? Are they testing all the sewage plants in the States and the UK? Uh, they, they should be. Um, mm. I mean, sewage testing has been used to trace all sorts of pathogens for many years. I've been doing sewage testing for four pathogens uh, of interest and antibiotic use since 2017. So it's not something new. Uh, and certainly America has had um, wastewater testing for all sorts of things before. So I'd be surprised if America isn't using it. Certainly Europe is. Um, I know Israel is. Um, so I'd be surprised if, if they weren't using it. And it's not very helpful when you find COVID constantly in a wastewater treatment plant before it gets treated because people excrete it for a very long time. Um, but it's very helpful to tell you maybe where you're starting to see it. You haven't seen it before. And then, and then that tells you that somebody's acquired it. And in Australia, the acquisition is mostly from a leak from a quarantine hotel because we don't have circulating virus. So that will tell you either that those people from quarantine who've gone back home uh, and some of them may have been positive and we'll know which ones they were, where that which postcodes they've gone to and where we should expect to see it. But if we're seeing it in postcodes where we've, we, we don't expect um, people from quarantine to go home to who have been positive, then that's when the authorities start to think that maybe they should call for testing. But back to your question about does it work without contact tracing? Well, contact tracing is used across the world, and America certainly used contact tracing. They certainly have um, performance indicators that are very similar to ours, that a, a case should be ident um, contacted by the contact tracing program within 24 hours of being identified through a test. Um, and their context, their primary context, should also be contacted within 24, 48 hours. So the U.S. do use contact tracing. I mean, they have held um, a very prestigious 
um, position in the world as being the best, uh, you know, epidemiologist in the world. Um, and, uh, and so this wouldn't be anything new to them. Um, but, um, certainly the idea of putting a pause on spread helps as well, but it wouldn't be for a rapid three day period. That's where it's more like a putting a circuit breaker. What you'd have to do is have people in, in lockdown for at least twice an average incubation period. Um, mostly the, um, the best approach is twice the maximum incubation period where you would want zero cases if you're going for elimination uh, in, for example, Ebola, uh, for example, or MERS, or if you're um, not tolerant of circulating virus, which Australia isn't. So, you see, that's the very big difference, Josh, between Australia and America is that Australia doesn't tolerate circulating virus. So their approach is uh, elimination. And that's where the Australian uh, population accept lockdowns very readily. That's That brings us to, the, I suppose, the main reason why I want to talk to you now, because as Victoria endures another lockdown, there's been a lot of argy-bargying over the past few weeks. I've noticed it become part of the national conversation uh, with people beginning to think about what happens in the longer term, uh, you know, the remarks by the Virgin Australia boss that at some point there will be coronavirus circulating here and some people will die, and she was pilloried for saying that, and the Prime Minister has emphasised that he's not going to do anything that would endanger Australians and we won't reopen the international border until it's safe to do so, which got a lot of people scratching their heads and going, well, what does safe mean when you think about the ambient background level of deaths from flu and other pathogens prior to coronavirus are we willing to tolerate those you know a few thousand deaths a year for example the way that we do with flu after we're all vaccinated what do you how do you get your head around the way that we ought to think about the longer term um well i first of all i i'm happy that the virgin boss was um ashamed because it it's outside our culture so you've got to really understand the culture of the country that you're dealing with uh, and in Australia, we don't tolerate this idea of a acceptable death rate. We just don't. Now, the reason that uh, flu, um, people die from the flu in Australia is because we haven't quite um, made it at the same level of uh, unacceptable um, uh, uh, suffering as COVID because Australians have really got on board with the idea of our um, place in space as global um, citizens. We do know that people over 60 ha have a really a, a pretty high level of uptake of the vaccine. At 75%, um, people would um, in health, public health, would like it much higher than that. The reason that those under um, 60 uh, don't get vaccinated is because the GPs often don't see younger people as often as they see the 60 and over. So it's much easier for GPs to tell those who are 65 and over each time they come to get um, their uh, uh, prescription um, um, refilled for, you know, their hypertension or um, their um, hypercholesterolemia, you know, for their cholesterols or their 
pain uh, relief, you know, with the anti-inflammatories for their um, arthritis, if you then use that opportunity to say, it's now time to get vaccinated. Uh, and if we could see the younger group, we'd probably uh, see very little suffering of influenza in Australia. I mean, we're one of the best uh, vaccinators in the world for the zero to five-year-olds, and that includes some flu vaccine of the young kids as well. We're up to 95% for um, childhood vaccinations because we make it easy and we have a lot of resources and... Um, Right, but I, I mean, I suppose the, the the question is when you said we that there are cultural differences here and that we don't tolerate an acceptable death rate, isn't the argument against that that we actually do, but we do it tacitly and we don't like to talk about it? That that if you know if we didn't if there was no flu in Australia and it only existed abroad, would we close the borders in perpetuity to keep it out? And if not, um, then we're hypocrites. Well. <laughs> There's a lot of underreporting of COVID, uh, and we just have to see what's happening with with countries like India, where they just can't keep up with the with the case numbers, let alone the death numbers. Uh, Brazil can't either. That what we think we're dealing with for deaths um, in uh, due to uh, COVID is underestimated. And certainly, the deaths due to flu um, it needs to be. Uh, witnessed um, and and responded. Uh, Australia bought 14 million doses of flu vaccine last year, and they were all used. If they bought more, they'd probably be used as well. It, you have to wake up the population, and it's the journalists who wake them up with the help of the GPs, the general practitioners, uh, that get Australians motivated. Australians are very cooperative, um, as a, as a nation for uh, public um, um, impact. So, for example, with the um, guns, so uh, when we had our, a, a very large um, massacre in Tasmania, our authorities said, um, we're going to take the guns away, and Australians went, sure. When we started to see that seatbelt wearing was um, not being... Um, um, used very well by passengers, they said, well, we'll find the driver. And all of a sudden, all the passengers quickly learned to use their seatbelts and nobody complained about that, um, um, you know, finding of, of the driver. They accepted it. Um, we're very ready to accept public health innovations like we, we don't advertise smoking. All cigarettes are kept behind a closed cupboard, um, and we tolerate that. Um, we 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 get public health quite well. We just haven't got behind flu, but I predict that after COVID, uh, the flu uptake vaccines will be very very high. Um, I was a part of um, getting the public to come for free. Influenza vaccines. Um, we did three um, cities all on one day, and uh, the uptake was very good. Um, but we need to get the general practitioners, the physician, family physician on side. Uh, but getting back to um, COVID and our response to COVID, the difference between us and America and 
the UK, I think it, the crucial difference was our authorities toyed or flirted with the idea of herd immunity from a natural infection. And the public, through the media, um, dismissed it as cruel. And then the authorities then responded with closing of the borders, um, uh, hotel quarantine development uh, under supervision, and um, basically um, uh, restrictions on a sliding scale of risk, uh, where the UK um, were flirted with the idea of herd immunity. And then the numbers went up so fast that it was too late for them to try to do elimination of circulating virus. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think that there are very many Australians who would swap out Australia's fate uh, thus far for that of the UK or the US. And many Australians are rightly proud of of Australia's response in having been so aggressive so quickly and being able to, to eliminate it. The question now, though, my, I suppose my fear, to put it bluntly, is that we're not doing a good job of transitioning psychologically to what the next phase might be in the longer term because I mean you just mentioned all of the other variants that are circulating the rise the horrifying situation in India who knows what's going to happen in Pakistan and Bangladesh and the whole continent of Africa I mean I see this this sequence of train wrecks coming and and at the same time I see friends in the US and Europe who are vaccinated and feel like life is gradually just starting to begin to get back to normal and all of the reasons that we were given for the aggressive approach here in Australia initially had to do with stopping a runaway pandemic, making sure that the hospitals don't get overwhelmed, making sure that the vulnerable are protected. And all of that's laudable, but whether or not that should still be the case in 2026 uh, is is the question. And if not, how do we get from here to there? And at some point, aren't we going to have to accept that all of the variants and everything that's going on in the developing world is going to mean that some of it will slip through? Like, I, I don't I don't see if, maybe help me out understand this, but I don't see a future in which you can have both open international borders and uh, a return to, I suppose, or a, or a continuation of the kind of life that we enjoy currently in cities like Sydney and no coronavirus deaths. The Venn diagram just doesn't, overlap, does it? Well, um, I'm a little more optimistic than you are. Um, at the World Health Organization, uh, a couple of nights ago, we had um, the world's best uh, vaccinologist provide us with evidence about how well um, all of the vaccines are um, responding to the variants of concern. Some are responding better than others. How to predict um, uh, whether or not a vaccine recipient is in fact protected because the term vaccine efficacy pertains to the level that the vaccine will prevent whatever the primary outcome was. And the primary outcome initially for most of them was uh, prevention of death, prevention of severe disease and hospitalization. And at the moment, it would appear that all um, commonly used vaccines uh, protect against the variant of concern for all of those things. What does, uh, what is challenging is the variants of concern uh, having breakthroughs with infection, but um, it 
at the moment it doesn't seem as if we will die, regardless of which vaccine we will have. And that's great news. Right, but all, all I mean is that even if you have a maximal uptake of vaccination in Australia, then there's going to be some cohort of the population who doesn't get vaccinated, some cohort of the population whose immune systems aren't uh, strong enough to be able to to react to the vaccine and provide full protection, and some cohort of people who are vaccinated but still vulnerable to at least passing along the disease to people who, I don't know, might be elderly or otherwise immune compromised. Is is it would it be realistic to expect that no one's going to die of coronavirus? That there will come a point at which no one will die of coronavirus, even as even if it is still circulating in countries abroad and people don't have to quarantine when they come here. Uh, I think the um, the biggest risk of death will be in those who refuse to get vaccinated or can't get vaccinated. But the reason that we talk about herd immunity is because it acts like a fence, and it's and yet that vaccine efficacy that um, results in a proportion of recipients not ever developing a level of protection represents the hole in the fence. And when you get a virus that circulates in a human being, they come across the fence. And if that level of uptake is high, and I believe it should be about 83.5% or run it up to 85%. <laughs> I love your accuracy. About 83.5%. And yes. About, um, yeah. <laughs> based on uh, Pfizer and AstraZeneca vaccine efficacy and based on a, an assumption of the R0 being uh, fairly high if it does happen, and that takes um, account of variants, uh, then the majority of the time that um, escaped virus through somebody coming into Australia will hit the wall of an immune person. It occasionally will get through the hole in that fence and that will be through somebody that didn't elicit an immune response or didn't get vaccinated. And yes, it will then, pers- that person will then get infected and they will then attempt to spread it, but well, the virus will attempt to spread it. Mm. And that virus will come across another wall. And most of the time that wall will be immune. Now, um, um, a, um, a colleague of mine from the University of New South Wales, his name is Professor Miles Davenport, gave a really exciting presentation at WHO uh, the other night to to all of us who were there listening intently, and he talked about the level that we need of um, that t- to protect us using a convalescent um, level of antibodies. If you know when people have a normal, um, sorry, a, a natural infection, and for um, protecting against death or you know severe infection, it's very low. So. That was really good news. It basically said, have the, have the vaccine and you'll be protected from severe um, infection and death. So that's great news. It's not great news for those who refuse to be vaccinated or who can't get vaccinated. So, but j- sorry to interrupt, we- Professor, just to, just to clarify, we're talking about, about severe illness and death, but we're yes. not talking about the infectiousness or the contagiousness. Ah. Oh, well, right. that, yes. Well, that 
by default, you see, what happens in phase three trials is that we get the primary outcome of success for death, severity, um, and um, hospitalization. But they often don't test for symptomatic or asymptomatic infection because it's time-consuming and it's expensive. And so what happens when they do phase four or roll out in the real world? We actually see that that the vaccines do better than we ever expected. So if you have a look at um, the Pfizer response in Israel, um, the Pfizer, um, even before the war, where you know people during the war kept inside, um, their response levels were very, very high. So it's not just protecting against the, you know, severe disease or death; it's protecting against infection. So if you have a look at the U.S., they've done brilliantly well as well. So they started rolling out on the 23rd of December, and they had on that day about 234,000 cases. It's mind-boggling. Mm. They then went up to a peak of about 307,000, 308,000 cases on January 8. And uh, just the other day, they were down to 19,500 cases. Wow. So that is, yeah, that is a splendid result. So now, wait, let me, let me, sorry, I just want, just in case people missed that, they were at over 300,000 new cases a day. And they're now at less than 20,000 case, new cases yes. a day. So it's, it's less than 10%. It's more than a, it's like a 92 or 93% reduction on what they were at the yeah. January peak. It's brilliant. So, yeah. And then the UK, which uses AstraZeneca in Australia, is using AstraZeneca in the over 50s. Um, they've had, so they started on December 13. They had about 18,500 cases on that day. Again, January 8, they had a peak around about 68,000 cases. And a couple of days ago, they had um, about 2,700 cases. Mm. So, you know, it it works. And so, it doesn't just work for death. So 68,000 cases down to fewer than 3,000 cases in the UK. The, the reason, yeah. I just want to... I want to get the listener's head around why I might sound like I'm being persnickety or a pedantic about this this question. It's it's only in contrast. I'm only establishing this in contrast to the what seems to be the expectation of the prime minister, and I think the expectation of many Australians that there's going to be some reasonably easy or predictable way to maintain elimination. That uh, I think most people are still, at least certainly a month ago, most Australians were labouring under the impression that we get vac- vaccinated, things get better in the rest of the world, the international borders open, and then life is basically what it what it was prior to COVID, and nobody dies. And so when I say, what about you know, even if the vaccines make us one hundred percent protected against getting very sick or dying, if they don't give us one hundred percent protection against infecting somebody else, and if there's still some cohort of people, I mean, let's assume that we don't get to perfect herd immunity, and there's still some cohort of people in Australia who are anti-vaxxers or whose immune systems aren't up to aren't up to scratch. Then, if I re-enter the country from visiting my in-laws in the United States, even if I'm vaccinated. 
there is a, I mean, prior to the coronavirus, over 100,000 people were entering Australia every single day. If, even if it's 99% effective, the vaccine, which it's not, 1% of 100,000 people a day is still quite a lot of people who could be infecting other people. And even if, you know, 83.5% of Australians are vaccinated, there's still some cohort of people where it can bounce around. Now, I'm not saying this is a price that isn't worth paying. I'm saying it probably is a price worth paying, but the price exists, doesn't it? There is a price, but I'll just remind you in Australia, 98% of deaths were in the 60 and over. In the 70 and over, it was 94% of all our deaths. So 4% were from the... Of 60 to 69 year olds, but the 70 and over, 94% of all deaths. So, if um, the the deaths in those who are younger than 60 is rare in Australia, our health services were not overloaded, and um, uh, fortunately, most Australians got what I would term non-hospitalised COVID because I think by calling it mild is disrespectful to those people who didn't feel it was mild at the time and they, you know, they were at home and they were suffering badly. Mm. Um, but, um, and this is a disease of an inflammatory disease. And uh, we do now have much better knowledge about what does work and what doesn't work with, um, with treatments. But we're still very thin on the ground when it comes to treatments and there's still not a lot of uh, accessibility to uh, polyvalent antibodies or monovalent and monoclonal antibodies. There's still not a lot of those around, and it's still expensive. Um, so yes, we we may get people who get sick, but if we can vaccinate to the 80 odd percent, all of our elderly are vaccinated. Though I believe, but it's not yet the case that we should make all frontline workers have the vaccine on a mandatory basis. If they don't want to get vaccinated, then the authorities need to find them another job. Because if you think it's your right not to get vaccinated, but you're looking after very, very vulnerable people, it's not your right to potentially be the conduit between the person coming in from overseas and then giving you the virus and then you give it to the vulnerable. That's not on. That's not a human right. Mm. That's just belligerent. So, um, but that, but the, so my parents, my parents are in their seventies. They're here. If I go and visit my in-laws in the states, and I'm vaccinated, and I come back in, let's project this into the future. And there's no hotel quarantine, and I go and visit my parents. There is some non-zero chance that I could have picked it up on the plane, uh, and I could be carrying it, even if I'm vaccinated. They're vaccinated, but let's suppose that there's some non-zero chance that they might be able to carry it. And as they go about their lives visiting their other over 70-year-old friends, at some point there's a non-zero chance that they're going to bump into someone who they could infect who could get sick from it. Is that not – what am I misunderstanding here? Okay, well, let me just make you feel a little better. So uh, at your age, you'll probably get Pfizer. There's a 5% chance that it may not work in you. Um, but that was based on people of all age groups, not just on your age group. So, in fact, the vaccine efficacy in your age group may be even better. Then let me remind you that we had um, a presentation by Pfizer uh, of work done in Qatar. And 
the vaccine, uh, one dose plus 21 days or, one, or two doses plus seven days, was enormously effective against the B1351, the one in, in, in uh, sorry, in South Africa, and then the B117. So um, it is highly effective. And if you do catch it, there's um, some science around the fact that you'll catch it at a lower viral load. So you, you're maybe one of the less than 5% that may catch it. Your parents will have had um, two, two AstraZeneca's. They have a greater risk of not eliciting a good response. It's highly likely that the Oxford um, trial of the mix and match will, uh, in the 600 they've looked at so far, it's been very successful, and that your parents will be offered a booster of Pfizer. Um, or an, an, you know, Moderna or one of those, which then really kickstarts your immune response. So the probability of lining up um, your parents who may be unprotected and yourself having a low viral load may be true. But what I think we should be doing at the border, which we're not doing now, is using 15-minute uh, rapid antigen tests uh, to identify that you're coming back in, you've got your vaccine passport that says you've had two doses, and it's still within a period of time that you should have good circulating antibodies or T-cell response. You then arrive and you have a rapid antigen test. If it tests positive, you will be should be tested with a confirmatory PCR test. And in the meantime, you may be put into some sort of isolation to ensure that that was a real positive result. If it's a negative, you go home. And how long does that yeah. take, Professor, the PCR well, test? Well, the, the, the rapid antigen test takes 15 minutes while you're waiting for your bags. The PCR test, there's a saliva one that was developed, I believe, by the Doty Institute in Australia. That takes four hours. Um, that would be very annoying, but um, there are also rapid antibody tests. So if you've got a vaccine passport plus high antibodies, um, it's unlikely that you're carrying it, but you could just do a rapid antigen test. And what's the false so, positive rate of the rapid antigen test? Like how many people would have to be waiting around um, for four hours in the in the temporary quarantine yeah, facility yeah. to get a so second it, test? So it, it does have a false positive result level. And But mind you, the PCR test has a false negative level as well. None of them are, are perfect. But the rapid antigen tests in Australia, most of them that have been TGA approved, have a level of accuracy of 99 to 100%. So if you're labeled negative, you truly are negative and you go home. Mm. Or you go home and you're told, Josh, can you please take this take-home test and... Um, open up your WhatsApp, and when you're at home on the third day, test yourself, and if you're negative, then you're most likely negative. So a colleague of mine from the Australian Technologies, um, sorry, I think they're called Technologies Australia, um, he prefer um, a model that says you stay in isolation for five days. And I think that we could be doing some research that says we'll do a test at the airport We'll do a test. We'll give you a take-home test, and um, uh, and let you stay at home for three days. We'll do some people for five days and see how how well that goes. 
But I think that um, the more we're learning about the vaccines, um, the more um, optimistic I am that um, we're, we're going to be in a good place. That's very reassuring. Uh, my So let's talk about the public relations, I suppose, component of it, because you're mm-hmm. speaking uh, as an epidemiologist, which makes sense. <laughs> I think about the cultural and political imperatives that politicians feel and the way that they have to, I suppose, pander to the uh, to particular factions who live in particular electorates that are important to politicians rather than necessarily to uh, to what to what a, a pure platonic reason driven policy might look like and i I still worry that the expectation that this is going to resolve itself with no downsides and all upsides is something that people are still holding on to you 're making me hopeful, but can, I guess let me put it this simply it will this bluntly. Do you believe that we can open up, for example, in calendar year 2022, in such a way that there will be zero deaths from coronavirus in Australia sustainably? Um, Well, Josh, may I, I give you some caveats? I think that the next time we get the elderly who acquire COVID, we need to take them to hospital. I think what we did by making them stay at a residential aged care facility and expect that that shared home environment that's not built as a property hospital would work and wouldn't then have the the virus travel through um, a residential home was unrealistic and cruel. So I think that anyone that's um, positive, that's elderly, should be immediately admitted to a hospital that can cope with a infectious agent. And I believe that when we open up, we need to be science-driven. We need to get away from the idea that we can't use rapid antigen tests. The reason I believe we're not using them in Australia is because they're not on the Medicare rebate system. So in Australia, every time you have a PCR test and you're not frontline and it takes a, a normal work hour of about 24 hours for turnaround, they get a reimbursed $100 or thereabouts. Where rapid antigen testing costs about an American dollar, $5, versus an Australian $100. Once we get rapid antigen tests on the reimbursement system, you'll have border protection, which at the moment is a state-based system, and they don't want to spend any extra money because the rapid antigen test is not on that reimbursement. Once we get that on the reimbursement level, then we'll start to use more science around this. An Australian company provides America with take-home tests. When I asked the TGA why we aren't doing that, I was told quite surprisingly that it's because Um, They don't want Australians to have the burden of being told they're positive at home with a kit. (laughs) But at the moment, they're they're already told at home because they get a phone call. (laughs) They're just not performing the test themselves. And yes, they've turned up for a test, 
with a with an expectation of stealing themselves for a positive result. That's right. And what and, what sort of what does it tell us about the esteem in which the Therapeutic Goods Administration holds us as citizens if it doesn't think that we're capable of uh, finding out about our own health results? I think that that explanation was actually um, um, made up. Made up. <laughs> I think it was made up because I then did reply, and this was at a public meeting, actually in Parliament, um, and I did say, you know, Australian teenagers and adult women have been performing pregnancy tests at home for a long time now, mm. and sometimes they're not always happy with the news. <laughs> so I'm sorry. I, I I think that there was another element that I, mm. that we weren't being told. Well, I mean the rules that, never make, the rules never make sense on this. Sorry, sorry to no. interrupt. But there's a funny. I do remember. Uh, I went for a. I, I had a bunch of tests of STD tests, uh, just routine ones. Uh, and the 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 clinic said. Um, uh, this was this was many years ago. The, the clinic said, uh, uh, "Look, if uh, if it's if it's no problem." Then we'll give you a call. But if it's a positive result with something of something serious, then we'll give you a call to make an appointment to come back in and be delivered the news in person. And I was like, well, then if you just, if you call me and tell me that I need to come in, then I'm going to think that I've got HIV or something. Like, just tell Mm -hmm. me. I'd rather know over the phone. If you like, don't, don't sugarcoat it. If I, (laughs) I think I'm going to tweak when you say, uh, we can't tell you what we need to discuss. You're going to have to be here in person. Um, yes, I, I do think the medical profession hasn't kept up with the maturity of uh, the community. So, you know, we give a results that say you don't have bowel cancer when you do a take-home test. And everybody over 50 in Australia is given a take-home test. Unless, of course, they've had a diagnosis and then, of course, they have um, a, a, a more um, invasive procedure every three to five years, but it's, you know, and then if you do the testing correctly, you get a, a, a letter that says that didn't work out, do it again. But I do think that we need to start giving full respect to the community about the fact that they're growing up and they can, you know, they can cope with this. So, and how would you get it? So, just to clarify the jargon, in case people didn't understand the last little bit, the TGA is the Therapeutic Goods Administration, which is the government mm-hmm. body that decides whether or not uh, Medicare, the universal socialised healthcare system that Australia has, is going to reimburse a particular drug or test or procedure or whatever. How do you get the rapid antigen test onto the onto the TGA like freebie list so that places actually want to do it? Well, that's going to be very difficult, Josh, because the pathology practices are not going to be very happy with this because um, uh, a lot of these PCRs could, should be um, augmented uh, with rapid antigen tests. For example, the uh, current cluster outbreak in Melbourne have um, Victorians lined up around the corner for five hours or more or sitting in their car for many hours. And Australians are unbelievably remarkable when they're asked to do something. They turn up in droves and then they're told, oh, the, um, we've run out of swabs or you know, the, the mm. centre's closing. Now, what they could be doing is augmenting this with um, what level of risk do you think you have and if you think it's low... Um, you get you get a, a rapid antigen test, and sure, you'll get some false positives, and then you have 
and there's a pharyngeal swab that can back up this um, this test better. Uh, regardless of what test you have in Australia, you're asked to then go home and isolate. So um, the pathologists are going to have to cope with the fact that the Medicare bill cannot cope with this for too much longer. Um, the amount of testing that we've done in Australia is, is, is very high, and all you have to do is multiply that by $100, and you'll see we're in the, we're in the billions. Um, and um, the other issue is, I mean, our Prime Minister started using the term rapid antigen test and um, gave the impression to myself and other scientists that this was a possibility. It's just that because states and territories would have to cope with the cost, they're not going to embrace it until it gets onto that Medicare rebate. And there's a, there's a, a tension mm. between the doctors, pathologists, and, um, and the, and the, um, the, the group that decide what should be rebated. So you mentioned states and territories. Uh, the states and Australia is a federation like the United States, so all of the provision of services is conducted at a state level by state governments, healthcare and, and so on and policing, and the federal government ha- handles the, the big stuff like defence and so on. So the border, you would imagine, is the federal government's responsibility, uh, the international border, that is, and who comes into the country. But once the person comes into the country, once and no, one, no non-Australians are allowed in at the moment, but uh, Australians citizens and permanent residents, uh, with the exception of the, the the weird quirk about India recently, are generally allowed back in, but they're funneled into quarantine hotels and kept under police guard for a couple of weeks. And those quarantine hotels are run not by the federal government who's setting those rules, but by the state governments who are the ones that run healthcare and police and so on, which are the relevant entities that, that have to run the quarantine. Now, some of the state governments would really like to open up in a fairly bullish way, not immediately, but in the medium term. In particular, the most popular state, New South Wales, where Sydney is, the Premier, who's like a, a US governor, is uh, is quite adept at, so far, touch wood, managing outbreaks through contact tracing, through localised lockdowns, but Sydney hasn't had a full Melbourne style, you know, widespread, you can't leave your house style lockdown since the early days of the pandemic back last May, a year ago. Uh, Mary Louise, what do you think is going to come of the tension that exists between state governments that want to get their economies going and feel confident enough that they can probably keep on top of minor outbreaks using good contact tracing and mass testing and isolated quarantine uh, versus the federal government, which seems... I mean, no federal government in Australia ever loses an election on the basis of, of, of tub-thumping about the border and making sure that Australians feel safe from threats abroad and locking up refugees on desert islands to ensure that none of them ever make it to Australia. The Australians are fixated on this idea of us being a an island that we can decontaminate from the rest of the world, be that other impoverished people or viral pathogens. How do you see it playing out if if, if we increasingly get a, a, a divergent priority at a state level versus a federal level on what should happen to allowing people to travel once again? Well, I think the Australian community are, um, are very powerful in um, their voicing of um, 
their displease, displeasure with their leaders. Um, Australians are very, very peaceful, um, and, and the way they voice their displeasure is through journalists and through um, their local member. And all you have to do is go to your local member and express this concern, and the local member who wants to keep their job will respond. Well, the, the, the tension that we often have is when we have a lot of um, states that have that, that don't actually, and, and areas within states that don't have independent representatives. Um, the, the, the member is usually first and foremost um, loyal to the party and then loyal to the people, secondary. But if they think they're not going to get uh, voted back in again, they'll certainly agitate the party for a change, just the way we did for um, uh, stopping our authorities from flirting with herd immunity, and that changed very rapidly. And it was often thanks to the journalists for helping with that. So how do I see this playing out? Um, as an epidemiologist, and this is a wish list that's probably never going to happen, I think that federations such as Australia um, should, because we have a very small population of, you know, 25 million, we should, when, it, when a pandemic is called, or it's actually a pub public health emergency of international concern, that's when member countries are legally obliged to start preparing and responding, not when a pandemic is called. That's actually just um, a call that is administratively important for WHO. But when a FIC is called, that's when we should become um, a collective in our approach and not statewide in our approach to have national best practice that is agreed upon by all the states and territories within a quiet room where they can get very cranky with each other, but it should be a, a one, a one um, approach, a, a, a whole of government, whole of population approach rather than Western Australia wanting to close their borders at, at you know, even one case, we need to bring in science so that there's no closing of internal borders so that we can test people so that they have a human right to see their family and, and, and travel for, for work. So we need much more science, even though we are very science-driven. Just as you say, though, Professor, that Australia has cultural differences that set it apart from other countries and that Australians are much less tolerant of a cavalier attitude towards life and death and are in many ways more obedient uh, than their counterparts in other Anglophone countries, the, there are those differences between states as well. And, mm. you know, West Australians, they do not want any coronavirus in Western Australia. That is... Yeah. That is just a blanket fact, overwhelming majorities. Whereas I think in Sydney, there is a recognition that, you know, Sydney siders are proud of being a big global city. They feel like they're connected to Asia. They feel like they're internationalists and globalists who can hop on a plane and go to Los Angeles or London whenever they want to. There is that elite in Sydney and in Melbourne as, as well. I don't want to exclude that. And if you are, if you're requiring a consensus within Australia about the international border, then aren't you sort of giving the most jittery premier or the most jittery state 
a terrorist's veto over everybody else because <laughs> they're never they're never going to see the world with the same cavalier <laughs> attitude that Gladys Berejiklian, the New South Wales Premier, does. I mean, in some ways, I'd almost rather New South Wales and Victoria uh, you figure out a plan of opening up to the rest of the world, and if the rest of Australia wants to cut off New South Wales and Victoria from Australia, I'd rather be able to visit my in-laws in New Hampshire than go on a holiday to Ningaloo Reef. Well, um, don't forget, you're talking to an epidemiologist, and we aren't um, economists, and um, uh, you know we are uh, criticised for not being economists, but that's not our job. <laughs> our job is to give evidence and analysis on on how to protect people from an outbreak. And then it's up to the politicians to then to decide. And then it's up to the uh, voters to then, because it's a democracy, to then say you're right or you're wrong. So I do see um, New South Wales um, being cavalier because they want to get voted back in. They, they want the economy to run, but that's from an epidemiologist's perspective. So, uh, you know, when I see Western Australia want to put up the border, I think to myself, I understand that you want to protect people. That's great. From outbreak management perspective, that's great. But let's use science so that we don't have to close borders. And this is where I get frustrated with the idea of why aren't we using rapid antigen testing? that, yes, it has its problems, but, my goodness, um, it would allow... I mean, for example, we've closed, we're closing our borders to Victoria. People are coming home, but they could be bringing the virus with them. To tell them to go home is one thing, but they could go home and then decide the fridge is empty and they need to go shopping. Mm. Um, or they can't afford, because not everybody is privileged, they can't afford to then order in um, food from one of the big grocery stores because they're charged for that. Some people live hand to mouth every day from every wage. And, and if they are told to stay at home, um, and they can't, you know, they've got to go out and eat and they may not have friends and family to deliver food to the front doorstep. So one way around that is use science, embrace science, um, that could prevent this sort of um, difference in response. We don't even have an agreement for a traffic light system. So at the beginning of the second wave last year, I, of course, stalked data. So I was looking at the data and I could see that there was going to be a big problem in Melbourne because there were the occasional case in two different hotels, um, quarantine systems. And then I saw a large increase in case numbers in our multicultural community. Why? Because they obviously have some relationship with the security guards who got infected from their um, uh, manager. Uh, we still don't know how the manager got infected, but probably because in those early stages they weren't wearing face shields and face masks continuously. And then it gets into a multicultural community that live in overcrowded conditions because they're trying to save money to build a good life. So um, where, where was a traffic light system that said when the case numbers every day goes up, and in Australia, I'm talking about Australian um, traffic light system, I worked out that if 
the case numbers got over five, it, we were going into dangerous um, times. And then I did some simple calculations, and sadly I was right every time that it was going to then escalate. And we don't have uh, a traffic light system across um, Australia for zones. And we could have this system that they agree upon, that if it's this amount of cases, like the last one, the one that's happening now in Melbourne, they had one case coming from the quarantine hotel. They then caused inadvertently four cases. Then they caused 10, and that was you know, twice the amount in 24 hours. At that stage, that was a red light for my traffic light system, and they should have had a three-day lockdown to give the quarantine, sorry, the contact tracers time. So a national system. And sorry to clarify, just, just I, I'm not across the timing of, of how it did play out. At what stage did the, 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 did the lockdown of the whole state come into effect? It came in on Thursday night, but, yes. but where was that in relation to your recommendation of the red light should have gone off at 10, um, 10 infected the, cases? The red light should have gone off on the 26th. So um, today's the 28th. Right, should have happened on... Um, so there should have been a three-day lockdown on Wednesday instead of yes. a seven-day lockdown from Thursday night. Yeah, because, I mean, exponential growth happens so fast, doesn't it, that you only need mm -hmm. that the 30 hours between the recognition of the 10th case and the implementation of the lockdown. You can, you can have people who don't know that they're infected infecting a lot of other people in the space of 36 hours. Yep, exactly. So... Um, now, I've got a statistician at my university, at the University of New South Wales, who ran a very much more sophisticated model, and he said, oh, your simple um, system works very well when you're only given a certain amount of data. And that's what we need on rapid data, making it obvious to the public. I believe in full transparency. It is a democracy, and to keep that democracy, you've got to keep transparency up. And that that traffic light system alters or you know flickers between you know um, green, amber, and red, and then the public know what's going on. Uh, it's um, it, it hasn't been tested in a in a large community like America, but certainly it's worked sadly every time in Australia. So we um, we really do need to become more um, federal based when we have a system, uh, we have a pandemic because just because where you choose to live doesn't mean you don't get best practice, national best practice, and that's what we need, national best practice across all of our country, and that's what I think America needs as well. You don't choose to live in your region because of who runs it. You choose often for many reasons, a job, you like the climate, um, you grew up there. That doesn't mean to say that you move because you happen to like the um, uh, the, the, the state premier. Um, you don't do that, or you don't happen to like the mayor. Um, you just move because of all the other things that make life enjoyable. And then if you don't like the representative, you try to vote them out. So instead of relying on the best practice in your area, you need to know that you're being given national best practice. And this plays out really loudly in our quarantine system. 
So we have best practice in Howard Springs, which is up in the Northern Territory, which is run by um, a group of people by called Osmat, who are experts in their kind of quasi um, military. And it's led by a man called Ian Norton and, of course, a doctor in um, Darwin Hospital who um, responded to the Bali bombing. And they have best practice. They've never had a problem, not one tiny breach, because they shored up all the holes in that wall. And when you do outbreak management, you don't just have one system of prevention, you do what like the Americans call bundling. So they bundle systems in hospitals to get best public, um, sorry, patient safety. So, and it's based on that where you don't know perfect evidence, you bundle what you think works well. Meaning that so, you you in, you you bring in redundant systems so that if one fails, the other will pick it up. If that fails, exactly. another another will be there to pick it up. There's there is no breach that will get through all of the the layers of the safe. Exactly. And you don't just rely on testing on day t- 2 and day 10 or 11, which we've been doing. And then if somebody feels unwell and gets tested between those two de- dates, they then and they're found to be positive, they then get moved to a medi hotel and they start their quarantine all over again. Now, that's just crazy. We should be testing more often uh, so that um, people aren't, left in quarantine for so long. Uh, we need to test our staff every day. That's only just happened in the last few months, and yet uh, Howard Springs was doing that from the get-go. So we we do need to have best practice, and um, Howard Springs was best practice. They have um, single-story uh, huts, um, and uh, they have natural airflow uh, because quarantine hotels were never built as proxy hospitals. They can't match the 10 air changes per hour per person for an average size ward in a hotel system where you might get two people in a room, a couple or a family who are uh, exhaling particles before they know they're positive and then they're spread. And I've been agitating since last year that the quarantine system needed to be purpose-built and 24 breaches later, we still don't have them. And I've estimated that since our lockdown on the 20th of March 2020 from the rest of the world and we put in place um, a secure uh, quarantine hotel systems, that just over 22,000 cases have been directly um, related to breaches in quarantine. And I know that I'm mindful of your time now, and I don't want to keep you, but just on the question of the the red light, orange light, green light system, where you would have nationally standardized triggers that would say, all right, well, we're going to go into a three-day lockdown because, you know, we've hit five, more than five cases a day, for example. Doesn't that depend on how good the the contact tracing is? And isn't it an indictment of the Victorian government that the, I mean, I was thinking, I was saying to a friend this morning, 
if only something had happened 10 months ago that might have given the Victorian government a kick in the pants and thought, wow, we really need to make sure that contact tracing is diamond standard, top notch, hire whoever we need to hire, bring them in from overseas if we need to, hire redundant people who've been laid off by Qantas. I don't care what it costs. We're going to make contact tracing so good that we can get on top of anything, throw all the money in the world at it. If only something had happened back then, like the four-month lockdown that they endured, one of the longest Mm -hmm. and most most harrowing lockdowns anywhere in the world and still they don't believe that their contact tracing is good enough to ensure that they can get on top of a small as you say what was it three people initially uh rate of infection would the traffic light system have to be different depending on each state's capability to get on top of tracing cases Well, well my traffic light system works uh that you don't wait until you get into the red you go orange and then you go um uh, three day um, a lockdown, uh, but but three days that, might the the Sydney contact tracers have, might do more in three days than the Melbourne ones might. Well, first of all, let me just remind you that that to do a good um, traffic light system, you respond before you get into the red. So when you're in the orange, and the, on um, on whichever date it was that we had four, which was the twenty fifth. So um, four cases plus the one from the South Australian Quarantine Hotel. That would have been an orange, going into an orange system uh, of five. It was then starting to go something seriously wrong. And everything should have, everybody should have been asked to um, start wearing masks, um, uh, stop going to the football. And then they were just talking about maybe they'll reduce the lines for people going into the football to fewer. Um, they weren't really realising how serious this was. Right. Which so it's still is, sort of being made up as it goes along. So instead of having a Thursday night, seven-day lockdown, you're saying on Tuesday there are a bunch of things that you could have done that are short of a lockdown that could have got, helped get on top of it. Yeah, and we could make this a national system. Right. So that so that the, the rest of the country isn't isn't having to cope. I'm gonna, and, uh, Professor, I'm going to let you go because I feel guilty. Yeah. I, I just just lastly, I want to clarify. I th- see if I can summarise this, okay? And if you give this the Josh Zepp's, uh Mary Louise McClaw's uh, sign uh, signature of approval, my takeaway is uh, bring in rapid antigen tests on a widespread basis. Require everyone who works with elderly and sick people to be vaccinated. Improve the quarantine hotels so that they're all operating like the Howard Springs uh, Northern Territory facility is. Test returning travellers more often using a greater variety of tests, and that way you can probably get rid of the quarantine hotels as as something that everybody has to go into. And what allow vaccinated travellers to who are, who have rapid antigen tests at the airport. To spend three days at home or something? Like, what's the what's the next step? Yeah. Suppose, suppose we're talking about, let's think of January 2022, right? Let's let's say we're celebrating on New Year's Eve, kissing under the mistletoe. What is what is a feasible expectation for those Australians who are still languishing with friends and family abroad and wondering when they're going to be able to see them? Well, I think it should be that they've had, because um, I've got one of those who, who want to come to Australia, and um, it should be a... a Double vaccines uh, within, and their vaccine has to be timely. They, you know, can't be more than a year old, or you know, it has to be uh, fairly recent. Um, 
and an antigen test or a PCR test, we require three days before they um, hop on the plane. A lot can happen in three days. So if you're going to require that, you need a, a rapid antigen test at the, um, at the airport. And then you get home, you're given a kit to take home, uh, even an electronic uh, wristband to make sure you don't leave your premises at home for three to five days. Um, and you're tested twice. You do your own tests at home twice during that stage. You take your band off, uh, you give it back, and um, you're free to go uh, around the community. Um, I, and, of, of course, it does rely on uh, being vaccinated. Mm. If, for those who aren't vaccinated, you may have to stay at home for longer. Yes, or you may have to still be in a quarantine hotel, no? Correct, yes, mm. but a good one. <laughs> Always a good one. Thank you, Professor. Great to talk to you. It's a pleasure and stay well and get vaccinated.